Welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. This week, I am very excited to bring Cody Townsend back on the show. Um, Cody is a professional skier. Uh, he also does this incredible uh, documentary series called The 50, uh, and they just wrapped up season three of that. And it was, the, I mean, the end episode there, we talk about quite a bit, but it's about his journey on Mount St. Elias and like in a big expedition to Mount St. Elias in Alaska. And if you haven't watched it, you should pause <laughs> this episode right now and go and watch that because it is probably one of the most intense and wild expedition videos I've ever seen. Uh, we'll, we'll get into a bunch in this episode. So super excited to, to hear him talk about that. Um, Cody also just became a dad. So huge congrats to him there. And so we talk a little bit about dad mode. We also dive into his very first 50K, which is so cool. It's one of the reasons I reached out to him. I remember last summer uh, I saw on social media that he was taking on his first 50K. And it wasn't just any 50K, though. It was uh, the Broken Arrow Sky Race, which if you haven't heard of it, um, this is a race where the participants gain... 10,000 feet of elevation in 31 miles. So uh, I had to hear all about that. Um, kind of hear about what the connection between ultra running and these giant like mountaineering suffer fests. So um, this is an incredible episode though. I'm really, really excited. Really excited for you all to to listen to it, to, able, to be able to hear uh, Cody's adventures. So um, yeah, this is, this is an awesome one. In fact, as we kind of like rapidly approach episode 300, um, I've set a personal goal for myself to, to make each episode, each of these next 15 episodes, um, I want them to be great. Um, and so I thought what better way to kick off this hopefully amazing run of 15 episodes of the Like a Bigfoot podcast leading into episode 300. Uh, what better way to kick off that run than to sit down with Cody? So let's get right into it. Um, this is the Like a Bigfoot podcast number 286 with the incredible Cody Townsend. Today, I'm super excited. I'm here with Cody Townsend. Uh, you're back on the podcast. And I have to say, like, I'm just super honored you would do the show. And I'm very, very excited. I have a couple of things I want to talk to you about, um, including Cody Townsend dipping his toe into the world of ultra running. So I'm pretty psyched. Yeah, totally. No, excited to talk about that. It's been a little long time coming. Uh, you emailed me the day my first son was born so <laughs> i didn't get back to you for some time and uh, eventually maybe like two plus months after was digging through all my old emails that it got sloughed to the side because yeah dealing with trying to figure out how to take care of a baby <laughs> hey man just uh that cracked me up by the way i was like because uh, i figured i emailed and i was like you know what like dude's probably super busy 
And then all of a sudden it's just like, Hey man, you emailed like three hours before my son was born or something. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, good timing, but well, we're here. Well, congrats on dadhood. Um, I guess we can start there. I mean, it's, it's the biggest life change that can happen. I think, uh, how's that going for you? Yeah, it definitely is the biggest life change. And, you know, there's still, you starting to figure out our patterns and still unable to get out there, but you know, there's so much more of your day is revolving around, you know, feeding and taking care of, of the baby, but also taking care of the wife because she's has to do so much. So, um, you know, we've done, I think a really good job of teamwork. Um, you know, I'm pretty much doing all the cooking and cleaning, trying to be as big of a like house dad as you can and support her. And then I'm still able to get out there. My time is a little bit different and quite often I'm doing it with a lot less sleep, um, and a lot less window of opportunity. I'm not going for big missions. Um, so yeah, it's been good. I actually got some, I got a call from Jimmy Chin right after my son was born and he was like he just unprompted gave me a bunch of really good advice first off he was like well welcome to the dangerous dads club and then second <laughs> off like you know you're going to be doing a lot of big missions but like the the thing about it is that yeah you won't be able to train like you did before of going out for 12 hours going to you know down to the east side for three days and just banging out a bunch of vert but as long as you like really just keep it day to day every day like one or two hours every day um and you you'll have that well to pull from when it comes to the bigger expeditions that know how how to how to suffer and how to get through it and as if you just keep that kind of day-to-day going you'll you'll be fine and it was actually a really good piece of advice because yeah your confidence gets a little like shot in a certain way being like man i haven't been out there very much and am i going to be prepared for when it goes to these big big missions at the end of the season so um that was a really good piece of advice from jimmy yeah man yeah have you found yourself i mean you mentioned not sleeping i know my my advice to everybody when they have kids is like you're just gonna have to wake up earlier uh that's like the the time of day you get to yourself even if it's just to like like i'm reading uh dave grohl's book right now and i'm like it's just nice waking up and reading a chapter by myself in peace and quiet for a while is just kind of like a cool thing. But like waking up early uh, has been huge for me anyways. And then I always tell people, I'm like, you know, you know, your chores, like your normal daily amount of chores, they're about to like multiply by five. <laughs> it yeah, doesn't make sense. Totally. It doesn't, the math doesn't add up, but you're going to have like five times the amount of chores. Yeah, no, I feel like I'm, there's no more just like sitting on the couch and reading a magazine or whatever it's like if i read it's like right before i'm going to sleep or whatnot but otherwise it's just you're running around at all times so um yeah no it's been but it's it's really cool i mean i will say there's these like all those things parents tell you about like it's the hardest thing you'll do and it's the most amazing thing you do and that feeling of like oh i didn't know i could love something as much as this it's very true and i remember like is it been like the first couple weeks that all of a sudden this like thing is like firing up in the back of my head this like tingle and you're like oh that's this love thing that I've never tapped into that is just like so powerful looking into this baby's eyes like it's it's really cool so and he's been an awesome baby so far haven't had many issues he's healthy and smiley as hell he's the happiest little baby and man it's a joy already already skiing double blacks and all that yeah totally yeah (laughs) we're training him for his first marathon coming up soon (laughs) probably by next summer we'll get it (laughs) um dude i love that man do you think is there anything in the back of your mind that kind of like like you do this project the 50 
um, which are once again, they're just excellent. Like they're my favorite things on YouTube, which is, it's so cool. Every time you release an episode, is there anything in the back of your mind that's like, Oh, I wonder how this is going to kind of like change my experience with these, like, like you mentioned, like bigger adventures. Yeah. I mean, the number one thing people ask me, and I think the number one most present thing is the risk tolerance and, you know, um, how are you going to keep your risk tolerance and danger level in check with a child at home? And, you know, I'd like to say like, well, it's not going to change because before my goal was always to come home at the end yeah. of the day. And I feel like I'm a pretty conservative decision maker. Like I tend to back down pretty easily just because I know like I got time on my side patience is key and if there's red flags like might as well try some other time not try and push it and push those margins of error um it's just not worth it to me so uh with the child i think well i'm not gonna it's not gonna change but i do know you know like i went up to mount saint elias last year when my wife was pregnant and i will say it was in the back of my head it was a very dangerous mountain um we had one really close call and you know it does it is in your head and i will guarantee missing my child at home will play into my decision making the good yeah. thing is it's only going to make me a little bit even more conservative potentially yeah um so if anything you're like well that's just more chance for come home and sure maybe it'll take longer to complete this project might take more uh opportunities and more time but you know whatever um but ultimately like the goal stays the same is it's uh you know i'm gonna try to finish this project but keyword is try i'm yeah. not going not saying like i'm going to finish this project it's like i'm gonna try and if it doesn't work out because i don't feel like the risk level is appropriate then i'll then i'll turn around back off and say i'm not doing all 50. Yeah. You just mentioned Mount St. Elias. Is there, is there any, cause I think what, what do you have left? Like 15 or 14? 14 left at this point. So is there any specific ones that stand out as like, Oh, that one's going to be really tough. Yeah. I mean, there, there's three cruxes on the project. As I like to say, there's, um, Mount St. Elias, um, uh, Mount Robson, and uh, University Peak in Alaska. Um, and they're all cruxes for different reasons, um, whether it's danger, whether it's exposure, whether it's just timing and patience and getting the perfect conditions to the challenge of something like altitude and weather and expedition style skiing. So each one presents its own. Um, I personally think University Peak in Alaska has the most risk level. Yeah. And that's the one I really question of if I'm going to do it or not. Um, it has some things that break my rules um, that are just to get up it. Uh, you kind of, I, it's a little more of a gamble than I like to take. Um, a lot of lines, I like to make sure that I'm not rolling the dice, not just like praying that Serac doesn't fall down on my head while climbing it underneath it. Like if I have, to, I'm going to go around that Serac in any sort of way, but this line in particular doesn't really have that option. So, so I don't know how I'll react when I see that line, when I try that line and be yeah. like, you know, maybe it's not, it's just not worth it. Like putting my, my life in the hands of chance isn't something I like to do. I mean, that's playing Russian roulette with odds you don't know you know russian roulette at least you know you have a one in six chance yeah. um, on mountains like that you don't know you could be like i could have a one in two chance right now or i could have a one in a hundred and playing those that chance game with your life is I, not a fun game to play yeah yeah that's yeah man i i watched the mount saint elias episode which was kind of like the crux of your season three of the 50, which was so good, dude. Like, I mean, like Thank I already you. said, but, uh, <laughs> so I'm watching Mount St. Elias, man. And 
you talk about like redefining your concept of, of success. And can you kind of like tell us a little bit more about that idea? Well, yeah, like quite often we determine success as exactly what you set out to go for. So when it comes to mountains, that's the summit or the skiing, the line, like that's just, that's success. Everything else is failure. But like, I came away with that trip so invigorated to go back and with so many lessons about that mountain and this experience, like when we flew into that mountain, I will say I was intimidated as hell. It's a terrifying mountain with horrible weather. And there's just so many horror stories from that mountain. And I felt it. It was like deep in my bones. When we landed on the mountain, you're like, fuck, man, we're in the middle of nowhere. We are on like a really exposed mountain. There's no chance for rescue. You are on your own. You better survive out here. And this mountain is dangerous as hell. Um, there's been a lot of deaths on that mountain. So like that feeling and the whole team kind of felt it too, was overwhelming, but spending two and a half weeks, three weeks, actually three weeks on that mountain, um, skiing the lower half, climbing, uh, you know, the upper, the, you know, I would say a quarter of the distance up, um, not the top quarter, um, and just kind of getting to know it and getting to feel it. Like that to me, walking away from that with this sort of like, I can't wait to go back. I can't wait to take these lessons I learned from it and to go there again. That feels like a massive success to me because not only did I come home at the end of the day, like I'm reinvigorated to go back. And like, we've already had our meetings uh, with the team, same team is planning to go there again this spring. We're like, I'm honestly, it keeps me up at night quite often, just thinking about how we're changing our tactics. So what will we change here? What, what do we do in the event of another big storm? How do we ride it out? Where would we go? Like, how do we ski this thing? What time of year? What time of day? All those kind of things are just playing through my head all the time. So like, to me, like, that's a success. Like, yeah. you, you know, if you come back from any sort of adventure trip and you're more inspired than you were when you started, well, that's a win. So to me, that was, it was a very successful trip, even though we didn't summit. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I was watching that the other day. My daughter, my two-year-old was homesick with me. And uh, I was like, I'm going to turn this up. I had already watched it, but I'm, like, I'm going to watch it again. It was so good. Like that one was really amazing. And anyways, I just have to share this story with you. Every time you showed up at the beginning, she would turn to me and she's like, is that you? She's like, is that you? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's not me. He can ski awesome. way better and all that. And, uh, and then this was the best part though. Your, your friend, Nick Russell comes on and he's this big hairy guy. Like I can't, he has hair everywhere. It's just yeah, it so much hair. <laughs> and she turns to me and she just goes, she just goes, that's not me like that. And I was like, what? what does she think we're watching here <laughs> yeah totally she thinks it's your like home videos yeah i don't know i was very confused but uh but yeah man that one um i know that you probably got a lot of feedback online just even based on like youtube comments um about risk taking as it pertains to that specific mountain can you kind of like talk a little bit and i know you've already talked a little bit about risk taking but like what was your kind of reaction when you saw that? Like, did, were you expecting like, all right, when I put this video out, everyone's going to be commenting, like, what were you thinking or, or all that stuff? Yeah. Ironically, like the comments on our Mount Whitney episode was, were, were way worse to me than that one. <laughs> like to me, like the, yeah, like the risk, like if, 
people are saying like, why would you do that? Why were you put yourself in that situation? And you're like, well, like, honestly, that mountain alone, it's just a part of the, it's like part of the ticket, man. It's part of the, uh, the admittance fee. It is just like, you kind of do have to take a certain level of risk in order to do what we're doing. That's why that mountain does not get skied nor climbed very much. So you just have to take it. And you can, there's ways you can mitigate it. Um, we did make a mistake. Um, there wasn't much we could do about it, looking back on it, unfortunately. Like when we got to the end, towards the end, we were skiing the lower half and we got clipped out and we were sitting with essentially a ticking time bomb above our heads uh, with rapidly warming temperatures and avalanches starting to happen around us. And then we got to a safe zone and just started watching the entire mountain fall down like that. That sucked. Um, that was... Uh, we shouldn't have been there at that time. We didn't have many op options though. The way that yeah. that day went, um, we were really stuck between a rock and a hard place because there was a massive storm coming in, which is partly reason why we got off the mountain. Um, later on, we found that in that whole range, the Wrangell San Elias, every camp from every mountaineer and skier that were in the range that were camped above 10,000 feet, which was where we were camped, uh, they got their camps destroyed like completely tent tents shredded i mean you're talking 140 mile an hour winds eight feet of snow that kind of stuff you just you nothing can survive that unless Dang. you were to build like a brick house <laughs> so um you know so there were multiple rescues there was military-led rescues during that time like it was just a complete debacle that storm for the mountain so we had to get off that mountain um and the thing was we also ended up being too late. So we had had a bunch of our gear flown off the mountain, um, be, like our big expedition style tents and whatnot, a bunch of extra food, cash. We didn't want to leave anything up there. So we got it flown off the mountain. As soon as the plane left, um, that we were stuck with very minimal tents, uh, mm -hmm. very minimal food supplies and very minimal uh, like fuel supplies, which is your water. And so we kind of were like, we actually have to get off this mountain because if we get stuck up here, we are royally fucked. Like yeah. we are truly in a very bad situation. Um, we're going to run out of water. We're going to run out of food and we're going to be barely like surviving in snow caves during the storm. So, so we had to go. And that was the, the hard part of it was that we knew it was way too late to be going down that day, but we were just like, we got to go. And sure enough, like, we couldn't even wait a day. The next day, the whole mountain was completely socked in and skiing down that mountain in a whiteout terrain. We don't know terrain that like does has really never been skied before, like going down complete whiteout. That's even more of a risk. So um, we were able to mitigate it. You know, we did. We obviously it was a mistake being there, but again, kind of kind of sometimes what you got to do. Yeah. Tell, um, can you talk a little bit about the beach? Cause you guys got oh, yeah. down to the beach and then it was like, yay, we did it. And then it's like, and waiting at the beach for days. <laughs> yeah. That was so like anticlimactic. We like got to the beach we're exhausted after like that 20 mile track and just like, you know, being up for, uh, I don't know, like 36 hours. We slept a couple hours, but then just like just missing and then bushwhacking and get down to the beach. And we're just like, finally we're here and we're <laughs> super stoked and then uh we call our pilot and he's like yeah weather's already turned i can't come pick you up he's like just call in the morning we're like okay meanwhile i looked at the weather before then i'm like i don't think we're getting picked <laughs> up anytime soon 
And uh, yeah, we weren't. And it started raining so hard, like unbelievably hard. And we had managed to get a fire going, which was really good. We barely set up our tents in time before it started raining. We got a fire going. But at that point, we were already pretty wet. And the, the fire, we built such a big fire from all the driftwood on the beach that we were able to get close enough to it where the front side of you would dry out. But in the meantime, the, your backside would get <laughs> soaking wet. So you'd like flip back around. I was like a rotisserie chicken trying to dry out. And we just sat there. I remember standing next to the fire for like eight hours straight, deciding like, when do I go in my tent? Like, when is it dry? Do I get dry enough to grow into my tent? Finally, I was just like, gave up. And you're like, okay, I'm wet. I'm getting in the tent and ran in there. My tent was completely flooded. Um, Nick and I were in this tiny, tiny tent. I mean, like cuddling up with each other style tent. And our uh, there was water probably about two inches deep. And luckily our air mattresses were about three inches. And you put your, your jackets and stuff in the corner and it was just like literally sitting in a puddle. And like our tent too, the way it opened, we didn't have a vestibule. And as soon as you opened it, rain would just fall in. So we just... We literally locked ourselves in there for, I think I did 28 hours straight without getting out of the tent and Nick did 36 hours straight without getting out of the tent. That's impressive. Stopped, stopped eating, stopped drinking water because I just didn't want to have to go pee. Uh, I didn't want to like have to go to no, number two out there. And it, it was just like, it wasn't that life threatening by any means. Granted, if our tent didn't have, you know, if our tent got shredded, it could have been because it was so wet and so cold. Um, and by that point, our fire just got completely doused and we couldn't get anything going again. Like it could have been life threatening and our little tent was holding us together. But more than anything, it was just really boring, really miserable, just sitting there for six and a half. I think it was like, yeah, six and a half, seven seven days of just being stranded on this beach and, and is, you like yeah dude. can't do anything it was just <laughs> miserable i think you guys filmed a little like you put a little bit of it in at the end of the like the end of your beach time and you guys just kind of like you can just tell from the look you're like yep they're they're not feeling great right now <laughs> no it was just pretty it was just like comical more than anything it was more like you look at it and you're like this sucks and i'm gonna laugh about this one day but like this is terrible this is so <laughs> just sitting in a tent laying on your back bag like you just completely cramped up in this tiny tent soaking wet for six days straight and we had a couple different dry periods but it was too cloudy to still fly us out we'd build a fire real quick and uh it was actually really difficult getting a fire going and we didn't have any fire starter material um and then it did start to, at the end get a little dicey um we there we had what looked like one little weather window and then the weather was coming back in and we had about uh two of the guys had a half day's worth of food left and I had about a day and a half of food left. And so we were like, okay, like if we get stuck out of three or four more days, like we are, we're definitely going to be rationing yeah. our food and trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. Where, do, where does that whole adventure rank for you on like the grand adventures? Like, is that towards the most ridiculous or? I think, yeah, it was most ridiculous. Cause it, you know, like there's this, feeling in those mountains like when you're on Denali there's a lot of people on Denali and it's an amazing mountain it's an amazing place but you're you, you're surrounded by people you're on a well-established track when you're on a mountain like that and there's no real 
There's no known up routes. There's not like defined routes. There's not fixed lines. There's not people out there. And you're like a hundred miles away from any town. Um, and like you're skiing into terrain that's never been skied before. And you're just being in places that are really, really wild. I mean, like we were, there was like tons and tons of mountain goats up there when we were tracking out of it. And it would wild how close they would come because you could tell they were just like, what are these like standing two-legged? Like these, <laughs> we don't see these things. Um, and you're just like, you're in a really wild place. And so with everything that happened when it came to weather, when it came to the line, when it came to just being where we were, it was like a grand adventure because it truly feels like kind of an, you know, it's been explored obviously. And then plenty of people have been there, but it feels unexplored. It feels like unestablished. It doesn't, there's no infrastructure and you're really out there and really feels you know, when you get stranded on a beach for seven days, you realize like, yeah, you're really out there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your perspective on just mountains in general. Uh, I watched that. I don't know if you've seen it yet. There's like a, on Netflix, the 14 peaks documentary. Yeah, I did. So good. Right. And at one point, um, like <clears throat> I'm trying to remember who they're interviewing, but at one point, uh, one of the mountaineers just expresses this idea of like being in the mountains is fear. Like you just have fear almost it's constantly present, whether or not you're constantly in fear. I don't know, but like just the fact that like when you're in, in the mountains, there is this fear that is constantly present. Do you feel that at all? Definitely. I mean, I feel like if you're in the mountains and you don't have fear, you're doing something wrong. Um, I feel like there are moments of absolute pure bliss and joy. Yeah. And, uh, but I think that's completely buffered by the fact that there, it's a fearful environment. Like I could, you go to these places and you realize you're like, humans aren't supposed to be there. Animals don't really live there. Like it was really fascinating skiing down that mountain and hitting about 3000 feet of elevation and seeing our first birds and seeing our first like butterflies and bugs and then seeing a bear and then mountain goats. And you were like, wow, like 7,000 feet above here, nothing lives. Yeah. and you're not really supposed to be there and so with that like comes fear because it's a place you're really not supposed to go and like I I think there's varying waves of it and obviously there's times when it's just like completely present because your life is on the line and I think there's times where you're just like you know trying to listen to the mountain listen to the, the things it's saying to you listen to its moods and whatnot and you're just kind of like in observation of it and that could be considered sort of a fear but it's like a different style of it so uh to me like yeah fear is one of the i mean fear is the biggest emotion in the mountains that you play with and you have to deal with because yes you can go through physical exhaustion you can go through happiness all these things but the like the number one thing you're dealing with is fear is trying to figure out whether it's real whether it's not um, whether it's re reasoned fear and you have a reason to be fearful or whether it's just irrational because it's really steep and scary feeling so there's all these like you're you're constantly playing with it like that that whole notion of no fear is the stupidest thing in the world because there is like fear is something that actually can bring you joy. And it's just a, it's an emotion and it's a tool to use to navigate through the mountains, to learn the lessons of the mountains and to learn the lessons of these wild spaces. Yeah. Do you think the, the fact that the fear is there like makes the bliss and the joy just like that much more apparent? 
I bet it does. You know, I, I would imagine it does because there's a certain draw to it. Like I, look, I don't go out to get scared. Like I would rather go climb Mount St. Elias and have no scary shit happen or yeah. not be up there and being like, this is going to be gnarly and I'm going to be scared because being yeah. scared sucks. Like it really does suck. Like I don't like it. Yeah. And I don't go out there thinking like, yeah, I can't wait to get scared. Yeah, today. No, no but fear. Yeah, totally. But then there's, <laughs> there's gotta be something where, I do say like when you can work through your fear, when you can work with it to create, um, you know, something positive, then it is, a, it's an amazing joy that is kind of to me uncomparable what I felt when you, when you get to that place where you're scared out of your mind and you get through it. Um, it's just like, a, it's not a joy of, just like it's a it's this joy of overcoming and it's a joy of just like feeling more human and whatnot it's it's really cool that's awesome man and i i i don't know if you feel this way but when you watch the 50 you get this feeling of like oh if you're with bjarne like you're gonna feel okay like just being yeah. that guy just makes i don't know why he just has like a calming presence and you it comes across in the films which is crazy. Totally. No, he's a very chill, mellow guy. So yeah, he's always has like a calm personality to him, which is a really good thing to have in the mountains. And so, and especially as a cinematographer, because he's just like, yep, crazy. Cool. I'm, I'm down for that, whatever. So yeah. uh, good backcountry partner. When you guys decide like the mountains you're taking on for the year, do you guys kind of come up with concepts for in this mountain we could do an episode like this i'm thinking of the buffalo mountain one in silverthorne mm -hmm. which my in-laws live like right at the top of that mountain like oh, it's nice. crazy cool. i love that mountain so much i've never yeah, yeah. tried to ski it or anything but i enjoyed that but that was like a whole different concept where you're taking on each other's roles mm -hmm. and stuff yeah well i've actually taken more of the job and the director of of, of stories um i've kind of always liked writing and I used to write for magazines and whatnot. My mom's a award-winning journalist. My dad was an English teacher. So nice. uh, kind of writing <laughs> comes in my blood. So I actually do spend uh, the beginning part of the season kind of like right now mapping out what I think we can do for this episode because I do so much research on these lines that I'm like, okay, where's the story here? And my thing about it is quite often when the line to me is kind of mellow, like it's more on the easier side of things then then I want to come up with a story. So when it came for Buffalo, like that is a very well-traveled mountain, very yeah. oft-skied Kular. It's like the town classic. It gets skied by hundreds, if not thousands of people a year. And yeah. so to me, you're like, well, there's not like a, there's not this challenge that that line brings. There's not too much backstory to it. Um, there's nothing like, it's just a cool cool backcountry lap like it was a really fun lap so where do i where do i come up with a story and now that that one had been in the works for a while the brna and i flip where i was like yeah like hey like let's i'll film you on an episode and i think it'll give like, people a good insight into kind of what you do and what i do by you know both sucking on in front of the lens <laughs> and me sucking behind the lens it'll kind yeah. of show people like yeah this is what i'm doing like yeah you know we laugh at brna being like Wait, I don't, I don't remember where we're at. And then wait, what do I say on the camera? And then vice versa, I leave the lens cap on and shots are out of focus. So yeah. kind of showing you the difficulty of it, of what we're actually doing out there and why we do what we do and why we're hopefully good at it. That's amazing, man. Uh, last question about the 50 real quick. I was curious, um, has anyone reached out? Cause you know, these are very popular films on YouTube and 
has anyone reached out that was like unexpected you know like you're like oh my god like al roker or something like i don't know <laughs> the i think the most random one uh because i've gotten a lot i mean it's yeah. pretty like pretty cool sometimes um like portugal demand the band reached out to me that's so sweet like, dude they were like hey when are we skiing together i was like well okay that's cool but the most random was that, and the backstory is, so uh, I used to work as a cook and a chef when I was a ski bum, and I've loved cooking my entire life. I started cooking when I was young. I'm the household cook, um, like a dream of going to culinary school one day. So me and my wife, we watched that show Top Chef a lot. Yeah. Um, great show. And we're totally, been we just binge that show whenever we can. Always looking forward to the next season. Well, there's one chef from Georgia, um, from Atlanta, Georgia. His name is Kevin. And he's, uh, yeah, one of my favorite chefs. He looks like he makes amazing food to the point where I was supposed to go to Atlanta for a wedding. And I was like, we're going to one of his restaurants. <laughs> like, that, we're doing this. Yeah. And random, random thing. At least sent me one of his stories once. And I somehow clicked on the story and I thought I was responding to my wife and I ended up responding to him, which I never do. I don't reach out to celebrities. And I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, he wrote back. And I was like, holy shit, he wrote back. And then he wrote back after that, after I responded again, he's like, hey, I'm a big fan of the 50. No really way. cool what you're doing. I'm like, what the? <laughs> so That's that so was, cool. Like, he's not a skier, not a like a climber anything like that he's a hunter now doorsman but he was like i love the 50 like that's, that's awesome dude pretty cool my favorite shit i'm glad you didn't you didn't message him something embarrassing you know like people yeah, always yeah. think people always think you message something embarrassing but i've messaged people thinking it was my wife and it's always yeah. super boring where i'm like yeah, yeah was totally. that the grocery store you want milk yeah, totally. or something <laughs> totally i know i always do that with texts and you're like oh carbon copied someone wrong yeah carbon but it's never it's never crazy um okay so i do want to hear about your first 50k uh you did last year you dipped your toe into the world of ultra running i'm very curious to see uh what you thought of just the community and the experience and all that but you ran the broken arrow sky race which is a crazy first ultra marathon and also i have to say like you said it was your very first race ever running which yeah that's a crazy one to take on. There's like 10,000 feet of gain. It's nuts. But yeah, tell me a little bit about that. What made you want to like jump into that? Well, I've been invited a few times before. So the uh, the guy that operates it uh, is this guy, Brandon Madigan, who owns a local store called Alpinglo. And it's a really great backcountry shop and running shop and whatnot. And he's a really great guy. Puts on a lot of community events. And he'd asked me like years prior, do you want to do it? And I was like, dude, no, I don't. I didn't run at all but he was like he's trying to drum up interest from people outside of the running community and coming from other sports like skiing or whatnot and you get some people that come in um but then last year when we've talked about this i started to run um a bit more i learned how to do it and started to enjoy it and then 2020 the the, the marathon got canceled and then for 2021 they he put it on again but it was scheduled this fall it's usually in like june or july mm. And uh, so he's like, hey, do you want to do it? And I was like, yes, I actually do want to do it. I was like, I don't know why, but I think I'll try. He's like, what what distance do you want to do? Because they have a 26K and uh, the 52K. And I was like, I want to say the 26K, but my mind's telling me the 52. <laughs> and he was like, all right, you're in the 52. And I was like, all right, shit. Okay, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> and I just like, it's just one of those things. My brain always looks at like challenges and things yeah. like, could you do that? And I'm like, then I 
can't get out of my head until I answer that question. So I, so I signed up for it and I will say like, I was not training specifically for it. I was still from my experiences last year. I started, I changed my training program a little bit for this year and uh, was incorporating a little more weightlifting and some other sort of kind of other cardio training beyond just like type two or no level uh, zone two training. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't being super hard for it, but I was, you know, I would do like the half course. I did that once I think before it. And uh, I was like, whatever, I, I'll figure it out. I bet I can do it. I'd looked at the cutoff time. I was like, it's 12 hours. My goal is just to finish. I bet I can finish that in 12 hours. If I, I can walk that in 12 hours if I had to. And so, yeah, I signed up for it and ran my very first uh, race of any running length of any kind. It's crazy. And, uh, uh, ultra marathon though i did get some shit from some of the solomon folk that i called it an ultra marathon some of the the badass runners like that's not an ultra and i'm like hey okay, man I was is it more it. than a marathon it if it's more yeah. than a marathon i count it dude yeah. i count it um i think you need to make i don't know why but i think i'll try into a shirt like <laughs> totally <laughs> it is so kind of it's kind of my mo so i did it so often so but no and it was also it was cool to like honestly the biggest thing with it that it was cool to compare the ultra marathon mm-hmm. versus the big supper fest that I do skiing. So um, you literally stole one of my questions. Oh, perfect. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm ahead of the game. The, the, the biggest thing I learned from it was that like the, the broken arrow. Yeah. It was a lot of vert. I learned after that, like 10,000 vert was a lot of vert for your first race. Um, but I was like, I, I guess I felt like I was used to a lot of vert yeah. because of, of ski missions where you do 10,000 vert in a day. So I was kind of like not too concerned with that. Um, but I do understand kind of why now that is a lot of vert compared to other ones. I feel like it's like, oh man, if I did a 50K with, with like half that vert, that would be way easier. So, um, but anyways, like what I did learn from it was that it was painful for sure. Like, by the end of it, the, you know, the final downhill, some of the final climbs, like my quads were on fire. They were just not cramped up, but just so tight, felt like just piano wires. And I was like, wow, like this hurts, but, but I can keep going because it's just like, you know, from all suffering, suffer fast, so you can kind of keep going. So I pushed through it. And, um, and then I was like, all right, that was really hard. And then I like kind of looked at myself uh, the next couple of days, I actually, had one rest day and then at three in the morning, my wife went into labor the next day. So that was in the hospital right away. But it was interesting because I kind of recovered pretty quickly. Um, yeah. I had a buddy of mine, uh, my old trainer tell me, he's like, hey, how are you recovering? And I was like, actually pretty fine. And I realized that the, the supper fest that we do on skiing are harder in a different way. Mm-hmm. Because the, the thing with the ultra marathon, it, although it was painful and it was very hard, and I will put the caveat that I wasn't very fast. Like I'm not trying to do this in two and a half, three hours, like some of the winners where I was doing it more in the six to eight hour range. So um, that's a big caveat. If I could try faster, it might be even harder. But when the big supper fest we do on skis, quite often there's so much other things going on, mainly navigation, mitigation of risk, fear, mm trying to figure out whether you pretty much your eyes and your brain are turned on the entire time. So when we did that mission up in Mount Stimson, where we're bushwhacking our way through the forest for 10 miles and then climbing 
seven to 8,000 vert and then coming and do it again, three days where you're just completely turned on. You're also doing different movements. You're not always in the same exact pattern. You're kind of stepping over logs, you're side hilling, you're going down step, you're always moving around left and right. And because of that, like I feel like there's this fatigue that sets in your body because you're just have to be completely present in the moment at all times. Um, and it was interesting because then in, in the trail running, like you just follow the trail and yeah. you can kind of turn your brain off, focus on just your legs, your movement, uh, getting some, you know, the aid stations are amazing. They were, they were great. And so it was this kind of realization like, yeah, it, it's just, it's different. I don't want to say like ski missions are harder because again, like, that was a 52K, it wasn't a hundred miler. Um, also, I wasn't trying to do it fast. Also, I know some of the guys that do these things and some of the guys and the gals that do it are some of the most fit, amazing, best yeah. suffers on the planet. So yeah. I wouldn't say it's harder and my limited, I have a very limited experience, but I did find from my experience that like the ski suffer fests are just, it's a different kind of fatigue. It's like all present and the recovery from it, I just realized it takes like two, three, four days to recover from these. Like you've got so much adrenaline running through your body. You've got so many emotions and uh, like navigation and your brain turn like on. Mental exhaustion. Yeah, you're just completely exhausted from head to toe. And so it was interesting. Whereas like the Ultra Marathon was more like, yeah, my legs are really tired, but nothing else is. Yeah. So yeah. It, it was, it was kind of cool. Like, I mean, I will take lessons from what I learned from that ultra marathon and bring it to skiing. And then I feel like if I ever to do that again, you can kind of take it. Um, if I were to do it again, you know, I'd probably try and run a little faster, try and lower my time and see what that sort of challenge brings like. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It was, it was cool, cool to experience both for sure. And I'm That's... really, really happy I did it. It was a fun, it was a fun, fun journey. That's cool. Um, I just wanted to know too, um, when was there a moment where you mentioned like hating running and then all of a sudden you like it, do you know the specific moment? Because I, I totally relate. Like I would run to train for sports, like rugby and college and stuff. And I just remember this, I just made myself do it every day and it sucked every day. I was like, why this sucks? Like, I know I have to do it though. And then one day, all of a sudden, like it just clicked and I could tell you the exact spot I was running. I could tell you what I was listening to, what I was seeing, like all of that. And I was like, whoa, this is nuts. It was just a trippy yeah. experience. I don't know exactly, but I do. I feel like it came behind my house and I run a lot of the trails behind my house a lot. But I do remember it would say, I think you just get into that flow state the first yeah. time where you're your mind is in just that like moving, flowing kind of zend out space and your body isn't overworking itself. You're not going to like, you know, zone four and just like breathing hard and tasting metal and feel like you're <laughs> coughing up blood kind of feeling. You're just like moving efficiently and every step just feels like natural. And then like you start to take in the surroundings of the woods around you and the lake below you and all these things. And it just like, all of a sudden feels like you're moving through the mountains and through nature in such like, like a very human way. And like, to me, I remember getting that feeling was the first time you're like, wow, this is really enjoyable. Now, like I chase that feeling. Like, I think that's like getting that moment where you're just like moving very efficiently, but still like quickly yeah. through the mountains. It feels so good. Um, 
I don't, you know, there's probably some chemical reason why, but I also think there's kind of like a metaphysical reason why, you know, I feel like there's something, you know, that's inside of us that wants to run for a long distance and wants to move through places quickly because it's just like, it feels so natural. Like hell to me, like, it's weird these days, but like, I, I love mountain biking. I'll still do it. But if you had to ask me, do you want to go run through the woods or go mountain bike through the woods? I'll choose run right now. Like yeah. I just, that chasing that feeling of moving through the forest and in, in that way, it just feels so good. Yeah, man, dude, that's so awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, last question real quick. Do you have, um, a favorite, like, or do you have a, like a sports documentary or a sports movie that kind of like sticks out in your head that kind of like inspires you uh, to kind of like make these films? Uh, so I got to look up his name real quick. So give me a second. But there's uh, there's a few different. I mean, I'm a big documentary lover. Yeah. Um, and I've watched them all. So there's obviously the, the famous ones like that are in our space that like Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli oh, made. Like unbelievable. Maru is unbelievable like yeah crazy it's the it's rescue so their new one the rescue was yeah. i cried i did it i was on the exercise bike before going in to teach so it was like 4 30 in the morning and i watched yeah. the whole entire thing before school and i cried probably like five separate times <laughs> and i was like <laughs> this is a weird way to start my thursday but Sorry, thursday i know i still gotta watch that but i would say to me so there's two directors that are that make documentaries that I absolutely beyond love. And one of my favorite documentaries of all time in the sports realm, especially, is Maradona. Um, and there's this director, Asif Kapadia. Um, he did uh, the Sen uh, Anton Senna ma uh, movie. Um, and he did one other one. I gotta I forget. But the way he does his documentaries, I think is just so unbelievably unique. And like, it's just pretty much all found footage. Um, some of them have absolutely no interview footage and are just tell a whole story with found footage. Oh. Um, Maradona, I think is one of the best films I've ever seen. And it's weird because it is slow. It is hard to get into. And then the ending is just absolutely uh it crushes you like it is so so good um, what's the what's the premise for that one um it's about uh diego maradona the the um the football the soccer player yeah and his life and his life growing up as a boy in argentina and then moving to italy and becoming pretty much the equivalent of soccer jesus <laughs> and the effects that that had on him and it's just such a such a powerful film um and so I, I like looking at those films and trying to challenge myself could you ever do something like that i don't think so the one of the things i realized with with these is some of these directors like asif kapadia like they're geniuses and they are the the people there like the killian journeys of making movies and making yeah. documentary movies you like they just have something you don't have but i aspire to do that um and then there's one other um filmmaker that he did the tiger documentary um he did cartel land um he happens mm -hmm. to be a buddy of mine now but matthew heineman um cartel land is one of my favorite documentaries of all time um just the storytelling in it is i think some of the, the best <clears throat> storytelling ever and we shoot a lot the same style that matt shoots his documentary films which is very just camera in hand capture everything tell a story after you cap captured everything uh get into the shit and film it when the shit gets really really gnarly that's when make you sure the film. camera's out 
and that's when you you gotta have it so um matthew heineman um like i said he's become quite a close friend over the last few years randomly met him um and he's a diehard skier and he's a fan of the 50 as well so uh been able to reach out to him for advice and talk to him about making movies but those two those two movie makers are the what like kind of inspired me the most to try to make better documentaries um i'm still still learning though man it's it's a hard hard process plus we're doing like 10 a year so i don't have the time and effort to just put it all into one Uh, one day i will um that is the eventual plan is to put all my efforts into one or two films but yeah we'll see yeah man well cody man congrats on everything being a dad the 50k the 50 which by the way if you run another 50k you gotta film it and call it the 50k the 50k it writes itself man it does write itself i know it's i'm like like I might, if there's another one kind of in the area, um, I might do another one. Like it was, it was fun to do the backyard one. I don't know if I would do that again. Like I actually do the, the 26 K as a training run or just as a fun run already. So just knowing that terrain so well, I'd rather do it in some other rates, but I might do another one. I did get invited to do a century, do a hundred miler. And I said no to that. Um, I, I'm not ready for that. I've been doing like ultras for, uh, since 2013 and I still haven't ran a hundred miler. I'm, I don't know why I don't, I like to sleep. I think that's it. I've done a hundred K that's as, that's as crazy. And then, a a six day stage race that was like 150 total, but it was over six days. So, or five days. So yeah, so, gotcha. Yeah, I get you though, yeah, man. It's intimidating. It's just like, 100? yeah, yeah. hundred. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to think, I remember thinking back to my legs hurting at like mile 33 and you're like, do that two, two more times that I don't know about that. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I'll ever do a hundred K but or a hundred miler, but, um, but the shorter distances might be yeah. in my future. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, dude, I appreciate it. Um, thanks for coming on. Can you tell people where to kind of like find your stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, on YouTube, just search the 50. It's like the first thing that pops up or my name, Cody Townsend. Nice. Uh, same on Instagram at Cody Townsend and Twitter at Cody Townsend. I have a Facebook page, but I never go on Facebook anymore because none of us of our age go to Facebook anymore. But uh, yeah, totally. But uh, but otherwise, yeah. So you can find me there and check out the 50 on YouTube. Sweet, dude. Well, I'd love to talk with you again after some future adventures, man. Thank you so much, Chris. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up this week's episode. Um, huge thanks to Cody. I'm just so honored when, you know, these adventurers and athletes that I look up to uh, want to come and do the podcast. Like, it still kind of blows my mind. Um, so for me, that was one of the coolest experiences that I had on the podcast because I I mean, I hope, I mean, I'm sure it comes across, but I'm such a big fan of the 50, um, as a documentary series that being able to sit down and like pick his brain and ask him questions and, and kind of hear him go into more detail on different thoughts or processes, um, is just so cool. And it's one of the things I'm so honored, you know, that people will do this. I mean, they, they're, when people are willing to give some of their time to kind of share their stories or their philosophies with you, it's, it's something that I definitely do not take lightly. And I'm so glad I started this project, um, because of that. Like I, I think back, like I've had five and a half years getting 
to talk to some of the coolest, most down to earth, but also like mind blowingly adventurous. Like some of the stories you hear people say and tell, or some of the experiences people share, um, are just like, they're so wild and so gigantic and yet the people sharing them are so humble and so down to earth and so awesome. And I think that actually is part of, I think that's something that like these big adventures kind of forge a person into. Um, it's hard not to be humble and down to earth when you've seen the world around you um, become really, really difficult at times, you know, like Cody mentioning the, the avalanches and, you know, having to be on the beach in the rain for, for days and days and days. Like how does, how would that not humble a person and kind of make them in awe of just nature and, you know, like make you feel small almost. Um, but in a, in a way that is good for your ego. And I think that's really a really key aspect of adventure. Um, and I think, and, you know, having talked to, you know, so many people over the last few years doing this podcast, it's just a common theme, you know, I kind of also feel like I should really kind of nail down the common themes between these. Uh, Cause I've talked to, people who have done a variety of different outdoor adventures um, and talk to a variety of different athletes, both amateur and professional. And <clears throat> I think there's so much that carries through where it doesn't really depend. It really doesn't really matter if you're doing ski mountaineering or if you're uh, rowing a boat across the ocean, like next week's guest. There's, there's your little preview, everybody. Um, <laughs> um, but there's crossover between them. And actually, I and then I always, I do find it, it interesting because obviously there's a lot of differences too. And so like when Cody was bringing up the differences between the mountaineering suffer fests and the ultra running ones, it's like, oh yeah, even though some of these like emotional journeys people can go on or mental journeys people can go on in these things, are similar uh there is also like each sport is unique in its own way so i always find that like pretty 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 fascinating um but yeah it was a complete honor talking to cody uh that was awesome please check out the 50 if you haven't already what are you doing like what are you doing there's like hours and hours of incredible ski mountaineering adventures and journeys and content and Cody's hilarious and he his his uh his buddy Bjarne who's filming him is just absolutely a complete badass and and he's going on adventures with like Jimmy Chin and like uh Alex Honnold and all of this like if you haven't watched the one and we didn't even mention it but there's one where I should I don't know why I didn't bring this up they they bike across Death Valley to go climb Mount Whitney and it's him and Alex Honnold and just that's the plan. That's the premise where they're like, we're going to do this and then do this other thing. And then just like every, 
everything that could go wrong does go wrong and uh yeah it's it's pretty crazy and then you get to watch alex honnold ski down a mountain who he hadn't apparently he's not he's not uh an expert at skiing you should you could say and uh one of my favorite parts he's like down climbing down this mountain and this guy climbing up is like are you alex honnold and he just looks at him and he's like yeah man and then they take like a picture together and then he's like hey alex honnold's like hey don't tell anyone you saw me skiing like this and then he just continues to sidestep down the mountain it's one of the funniest parts but uh but yeah go check those out um they're awesome so so yeah and then i mentioned at the beginning just uh when we we're talking about dadhood um it was at first it was always my joke like you just got to wake up like two hours earlier than you normally would like 4 a.m um but it's so true i'm recording this intro and outro at 4 a.m on a thursday morning before i put the podcast up so uh living the life that i was preaching and i'm very tired my eye my eyes like you know What's the thing? The things under the eyes, the bags under the eyes, they feel like super heavy this morning. Like by Thursday, the bags under my eyes are like weighing my face down. They're like pulling my face down. But that's where we're at. And we're going to make the best of today. So, so yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll be back at you next week. We have a story about rowing across the Pacific Ocean solo for 87 days from this incredible athlete. Leah Ditton, and it's it's such a good one, dude. And her website's called Row Leah Row, and she made a short film called 87 Days Alone Across the Pacific, and you should check that out. That's on Vimeo um, before we talk to her. All right, that's it for the week. We will get back at you next week.